Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obamacare is illegal immigrants. Well, African Americans uh, being mistreated in society. Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. Trade war. You know what it is? My new slogan. America great. Thanks for joining us for another episode of 2020 Vision, the United States Study Center's weekly look at the issues dominating the campaign in the 2020 US presidential election. Who would have thought that an historic summit between the United States and North Korea would be the least interesting news of the week? But here we are with President Trump's former lawyer offering explosive testimony to Congress on hush money to porn stars and secret talks with WikiLeaks. Plus, there's the looming completion of the Mueller report and Tuesday's votes in the House of Representatives to block Trump's emergency declaration on the southern border. Before we meet our guests, let's have a listen to some of what Michael Cohen had to offer up to Congress this week. I am ashamed because I know what Mr. Trump is. He is a racist, he is a con man, and he is a cheat. Questions have been raised about whether I know of direct evidence that Mr. Trump or his campaign colluded with Russia. I do not. Mr. Trump knew of and directed the Trump-Moscow negotiations throughout the campaign and lied about it. He asked me to pay off an adult film star with whom he had an affair and to lie about it to his wife. What did the president ask or suggest that you say about the payments or reimbursements? He was not knowledgeable of these reimbursements and he wasn't knowledgeable of my actions. He asked you to say that? Yes, ma'am. No one should ever listen to you and give you credibility. Putting up silly things like this, really unbecoming of Congress, it's that sort of behavior that I'm responsible for. I'm responsible for your silliness because I did the same thing that you're doing now for 10 years. I protected Mr. Trump for 10 years. Our guest this week, you may know as one half of Trump Tuesday with Richard Glover on ABC Radio's Dry Program. He's also a senior lecturer in American politics at the United States Study Centre. Dr. David Smith, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Donald Trump's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, testified Wednesday before the House Oversight Committee. Uh, it was a marquee event of what was sort of three days of testimony, but some behind closed door and some public. In his opening statement, he called the president a racist, a con man and a cheat. Uh, was he able to prove any of these allegations? He certainly gave some very strong suggestive evidence. Okay about those things. Not necessarily anything that we didn't know before, but really things that enhance what we already knew. So certainly his anecdotes about Trump being racist, saying he's much worse in private than he is in public. Mm -hmm. This included things like driving around an African-American area of Chicago and saying only blacks could live like that and saying that blacks were too stupid to vote for him, saying that can you name me one country led by a black person that is in a shithole. This was at the time when Barack Obama was actually the president of the United States. All of this also conforms to other stories that we've heard over the years about Trump's racism in private. 
The stuff that he was saying about Trump being a cheat and a con man, that essentially confirmed what most of his biographers have said over the years. So Cohen describes having to call operators of businesses, usually small businesses, to tell them that Trump wasn't going to pay them or was going to offer a reduced payment. That is very much in line from things that we've learned from court documents over the years about how Trump operates his business. So those charges, I think, are eminently plausible and they add a lot more sort of colour and detail to what we already know. Cohen's an admitted liar, right? Mm. He's pleaded guilty to lying to Congress. He's admitted to numerous misdeeds. Uh, How does he convince Republicans or the public that what he's alleging about the president in these hearings is true? Do do we think that he's going to be able to convince anyone about these claims about hush money to porn stars or, you know, the president's knowledge of Roger Stone's contact with WikiLeaks? Well, I don't know if he'll be able to convince Republicans, but his line for convincing everybody else is, yes, I was lying. I was lying to protect Trump and I'm not protecting Trump anymore. So here is the truth. Certainly he has hard evidence behind some of the things that he's saying. So he can actually produce the check that Trump used to reimburse him for his payment to Stormy Daniels. There's some question about whether legally that's a slam dunk about Trump committing a campaign finance violation because his team would still be able to argue that Trump didn't actually know that he was breaking the law there. But still, that's very strong evidence Mm -hmm. that something that Cohen has claimed that Trump has denied actually happened. Some of the other stuff will be harder to substantiate. So his account of being in the room when Donald Trump put Roger Stone on voicemail and Stone said, I've just got off the phone with Assange and there's going to be a WikiLeaks dump and Trump said, oh, isn't that great? So this has been a major point of contention about whether Trump knew about the WikiLeaks dump in advance, which would suggest the possibility of some kind of collusion with uh, Julian Assange. However, Julian Assange's lawyer has already said that no such phone call ever took place. Now, it's not clear why Julian Assange's lawyer would know whether a phone call between Roger Stone and Donald Trump ever took place. But this is just a sign of what's to come in terms of these accounts that can't actually be materially substantiated are are just going to be completely disputed by Republicans and they are going to completely hammer the point that he's already been convicted of lying even though he was convicted of lying in order to protect Donald Trump. Another major thing that has come out of this is Michael Cohen said that Trump never told him directly to lie about the timeline of the negotiations over Moscow Trump Tower. Yes, this is part of the sort of the BuzzFeed uh, initial story about him yes. being directed. Yeah. yeah, so Michael Cohen has said that those negotiations were actually going up until actually uh, after the election campaign right. had finished, yep. despite warnings that were given to Trump about the Russians, whereas Trump has said no, they were finished up by the middle of 2016. Now, BuzzFeed said that they... They had evidence that Michael Cohen had told the FBI or given even given documentary evidence to the FBI that Trump had directed him to lie, which would be an incredibly serious crime. Yep. I mean, that's the sort of thing that people build grounds of impeachment around. Yep. Cohen has said, no, he didn't direct me to lie because that is not his way. So this does dispute the BuzzFeed story right. in quite an important way, although then at the same time Cohen says... Trump was definitely implicitly instructing me to lie in his own way by 
constantly repeating these falsehoods with the expectation that Cohen would repeat them, with yep. them both knowing that they were falsehoods. And then he also said, under questioning from Democrats last night, that Trump's lawyers had actually edited that statement that he sent to Congress, right. which was what got him convicted for perjury. Uh, he said one of Trump's personal lawyers, Joe Sekulow, actually edited the statement. So even though that disputes or refutes the exact allegation that BuzzFeed made, yeah. it does create another allegation which is fairly serious, even if it isn't sort of quite as legally damning. You mentioned uh, impeachment before. Do we think uh, any of the allegations or evidence that uh, Cohen produced could be used to help Democrats draft the articles of impeachment at this stage? I think this will motivate some Democrats to want to draft those articles of impeachment. Yeah. There's going to be a big argument within the Democratic Party in Congress about whether to proceed with this. Mm -hmm. Prior to the midterm election, a lot of Democratic leaders were saying that it's unlikely that we'll go ahead with impeachment because we don't want to do anything that would be seen to be contrary to the democratic process. Right. And we had Nancy Pelosi saying this. We had Adam Schiff, who is the um, he's now the chair of the Intelligence Oversight Committee, saying this. So pretty important people saying, yeah, we're not we're probably not going to impeach. But with the size of that midterm victory, with the entry of people into Congress who have said, like Rashida Tlaib, um, saying we're going to impeach, yeah. there will be a lot of people yeah. who, who want to impeach. And probably even if they think that they won't have a chance of going all the way with it, that is that the Senate wouldn't convict Trump on a two-thirds vote because at this point it's still really hard to imagine that many Republicans or possibly any Republicans at all going along with it, it's still impeachment, a vote in the House might still be something that they want to do for symbolic reasons because they believe it'll keep pressure on Trump all the way up to the campaign because it will serve their view that he is really not a legitimate president. So there's going to be a big debate about this and I would say this will fuel the side that actually wants impeachment. I want to talk a bit about uh, an awkward moment in the proceedings uh, overnight uh, with Cohen. Um, in response to allegations of, of racism, um, Republicans brought an African-American woman um, up to the podium called Lynn Patton. Uh, she stood sort of silently behind them while they claimed that the president couldn't be racist because Patton had been hired to work at the Department of Housing and Urban mm. Development. Um, she was also, I believe, formerly an event planner for Eric Trump's wedding. Um, uh, what yep. was going on here, David? Was this the equivalent of saying, I can't be racist because I have black friends? Is That's that exactly what it was. Right. <laughs> and they've used her in this capacity before. Okay. She's not a new... Yeah, she spoke at one of the Republican conventions, I think, previously. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that we need to have a sophisticated understanding of what racism actually is. Mm -hmm. It doesn't preclude never having dealings with black people. Yeah. It doesn't preclude never treating African-Americans well. Uh, what it is is a deeply ingrained set of assumptions. Yep. It's adherence to structures around racism. It's the use of certain privileges of whiteness, which Trump has used time and time again. It's things like what he did in the 1980s, taking out a full-page ad saying that the alleged Central Park muggers should be executed. These were all uh, young black and Puerto Rican men whose convictions were later vacated. It is things like launching your political career by saying, by demanding to see Barack Obama's birth certificate. Yeah. 
Trump, I think, has a very deep sense about the racist currents in American life. He's always been prepared to use that to his political advantage. His labelling of countries that immigrants come from as shitholes, his labelling of Mexicans coming into the United States as rapists and murderers, his current language about an invasion of people. He is very prepared to stir up uh, racial hatred in the United States and all evidence points to that this is what he believes personally. The way that he has treated employees personally as part of his business dealings is really fairly irrelevant. Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report on Russian interference in the 2016 election is expected to be delivered to the Justice Department at any sort of moment now. Um, It may be sometime before the public sees that report. Can you explain the process behind that release? Why is it Mm. not released publicly initially? Well, the only actual legal requirement of the report is that it's released to the Attorney General. And I was quite surprised to learn then all the Attorney General has to do technically is report to Congress that the investigation is over. Right. So it doesn't have to give a summary or... That is technically where it could end. Now, it's it's not going to end there uh, because William Barr, the Attorney General, was only actually appointed recently and during his confirmation he said he was committed to maximum transparency about the report. So that indicates he will at least release some of it. Yeah, there were some caveats I remember in that testimony. Well, yeah, so one of the things that Democrats are worried about is the advice that he got from uh, Rod Rosenstein, who's the former Deputy Attorney General, and the guy who supervised the investigation for much of the time, certainly no apologist or coverer for Trump, who was saying it wouldn't be proper to actually release information that related to unindicted persons. Right, which could be the president. Which will be the president, well, almost certainly will be the president, especially since the Justice Department is asserting a policy that the president can't be indicted. That's a debate (laughs) for legal scholars, but it'll be what is followed here. So you can see the kind of reasoning behind this because there's an incredible amount of information that was poured into this investigation and into the report. Mm -hmm. Some of it's probably going to be wrong. Some of it's going to be based on hearsay. And so the legal reasoning is you don't mention anyone who wasn't actually indicted because you don't want innocent people to potentially be caught up sure. in all of this. You limit your comments to the people who were act- will actually be prosecuted as a result of this. However, given this policy that the president can't be indicted, and I think even given the expectation almost from the beginning that he wouldn't be indicted because from the beginning the investigation seemed to relate to people who were certainly involved with Trump, people like Manafort or Stone, but it always seemed very tenuous how directly Trump himself would be connected to it. And that's why we see all this sort of speculation about was Trump aware of a certain meeting taking place? Yep. Uh, was a, a phone call that came in to Donald Trump from an unlist Donald Trump Jr. from an unlisted number? Was that his dad? Turned out not to be. So, if that's the case, I think we can reasonably expect Donald Trump won't be an indicted person. And so I think Democrats are worried that William Barr will actually follow that advice and not release any of the stuff in there that pertains to Trump. If that's the case, then we probably already have seen a lot of what will actually come out of that report from the arrests of Roger Stone and Paul Manafort. And I'm temporarily blanking on his name, but the guy who thinks that Alexander Downer is an international... Oh, George Papadopoulos. Yes. Yes. Is an international espionage mastermind. 
that, so we already know <laughs> uh, substantially what's happened to them. And if the details that Barr releases from the report are mainly about them, then it really won't be nothing. Sorry, it really won't be anything new. After all these criminal charges and indictments we've already seen from Mueller, mm. um, uh, do you expect we're going to see any other people, we've mentioned the president, but any other people um, as, as having criminal charges filed against them in this final report? There is still speculation about Donald Trump Jr. Right. Because he had this meeting with a Russian operative who was promising dirt on Hillary Clinton. Yeah. So it looks like he really might have done something wrong then. There seems to be an assumption, which is one that has been heavily promoted by Team Trump itself, that he was just naive and didn't really know what he was doing. Yeah, Cohen said in his testimony yesterday that that, uh, the president thought his uh, um, son had the worst judgment of of anyone he knew. Yeah, Yeah. it's almost like, is he too stupid to form criminal intent or something like that? It's an almost heartbreaking detail. Um, Although then Cohen had this other tidbit that he said he was in a meeting where Donald Trump Jr. actually walked in, went behind Trump's desk, which was highly unusual, and whispered to him, Audibly, of course, the meeting is set. Right. And Trump said, great, which that would indicate that Trump actually knew what was going on and was potentially directing what was going on. So I think uh, Donald Trump Jr. would be another potential one to watch out for. Although it's possible that given he hasn't been indicted yet, in fact, there hasn't really been even any talk about that yet, that that it might not happen, that they might not view that as anything... Um, that was bad enough. Once again, if he did do that, then that would be in the realm of what's effectively a campaign finance violation. Okay. Because under campaign finance rules, you can't accept any help at all from a foreign entity. Yeah. This is why the WikiLeaks thing uh, is potentially a big deal because WikiLeaks counts as a foreign entity. If it seems that Team Trump knew about what was going to happen, that raises the possibility that they were benefiting from it. By the same token, this Russian operative was offering information. Now, even though she apparently didn't give any, Trump Jr. says that he walked out when he realised what was going on in the meeting. Soliciting that kind of help is also a campaign finance violation. Campaign finance violations can be treated very, very seriously by the courts and by prosecutors. We've seen people do jail time for things that to an outside observer might seem rather petty, you know, for a $5,000 violation of campaign finance. But they are considered uh, very serious because they violate the democratic process. Right. However, in this case, it doesn't look like so far that Donald Trump Jr., is going to be indicted, but it is one of the possibilities that's out there. Okay. Uh, the US House of Representatives voted to uh, kill off Trump's emergency declaration on the southern border on Tuesday. Let's have a listen to how that issue's played out this week. Breaking news tonight from the House of Representatives, the House voted 245 to 182 in favour of a resolution blocking the president's national security emergency declaration at the southern border. 13 Republicans joined 232 Democrats voting to pass the resolution. It now heads to the Senate. Here's what the president said in response. I hope our great Republican senators don't get led down uh, the path of weak and ineffective border security without strong border we don't have a country and the voters are on board with us. Be strong and smart. Don't fall into the Democrats' trap of open borders and crime. David, do you think we'll see Republicans join Democrats uh, to get this uh, measure through the Senate? 
We may see some of them because certainly some Republicans have voiced deep misgivings about the use of an emergency order. Now, the ones who are writing open letters, these are all retired Republicans. We're yet to hear so much from the Republicans who are actually in Congress. But the main fear that a lot of them will have is not that Trump will fail, but that he'll succeed. Right. That if this gets through the legal challenges that are going to be presented and Trump is allowed to do this, then what is going to stop a future Democratic president from declaring climate change a national emergency? Yep, or gun and control or something gun like that. Gun control. Yep. The American healthcare system, it's a national emergency. And, you know, they're conscious of the fact Trump won't be president forever. There won't be a Republican president forever. They will be the minority at some point. You know, long-term legislators in the United States are always aware of the fact that they could be a minority after the next election, which is why it's traditionally unusual for the party in power to change the rules too dramatically about what they can actually do because they know that they're going to be in opposition at some point. But this, of course, none of this is a concern to Trump. Trump has voiced before he really doesn't care about things that are going to happen after he leaves office. This is his view on the national debt, for example. He said, well, that'll come due after I'm gone. So... There will be Republicans who are very worried about the long-term implications of a state of emergency. Whether that can actually motivate them to vote against Trump, because we've seen in the past a lot of Republicans have been voiced concerns about things, but they're still very worried about the political consequences of voting against a Republican president, especially one who has such a fanatical following among the Republican base. So we're yet to see whether any Republicans will actually join in. Of course, for that blocking to work, they would need enough numbers to override Trump's presidential veto. Right. So even if it got through the Senate, the president could still veto that measure. Yeah, and he's promised he will veto it. Right. So then you would need to get two-thirds of the Senate and two-thirds of the House, which I think would really be a bridge too far, even if there are a lot of Republicans out there who are worried about it. What Democrats really want to do here, though, is to make a stand. Uh, There's also the court system as well involved in this declaration. So um, if it doesn't, um, if this measure doesn't get through the Senate or they Mm -hmm. can't get the two-thirds majority, uh, there's still a chance that the courts may strike this down? Well, yeah, I think there's quite a good chance that the courts will strike this down. So a lawsuit's already been lodged in the federal court in San Francisco with 16 states involved. All of those are states with a Democratic governor except for Maryland, who has a Republican governor who often actually goes along with the Democratic majorities in the House and Senate in his state. So we have to remember that in the American political system, often huge legislative changes happen or or huge social policy changes happen as a result of one part of the government suing another. This is a major part of American culture is that litigation is actually a very important part of lawmaking. It is likely... I've heard legal observers say that this is going to drag on for the next two years. God. So, uh, you know, Trump can implement the state of emergency, but it will be challenged and it will be a legal issue for the next two years. What opponents of this are going to say is this violates the Constitution because one of the most important checks on presidential power is that the House of Representatives controls the budget. And this goes right the way back to the founding of America when the founding fathers believed 
that the House of Representatives was the part of the government that was closest to the people and so would be most responsible with the people's money. It means that whatever the president wants to do, the House of Representatives ultimately decides whether they're going to give the president the money to do it. And this is the president basically just doing an end run around that. Now, it's been pointed out that the national emergency has been invoked many times before by many other presidents, but those are related to things that were widely considered emergencies, things like wars, things like natural disasters, things like sudden violations of international law, which led to the implementation of sanctions. This, on the other hand, was something that Congress debated for months. It was a policy aim of Trump that was ultimately rejected by Congress. So this is very different. Also, opponents of this have immediately seized on something that Trump said, which was, I didn't have to do this. Right. He said he could have gone through a process that was much longer, much more dragged out. He said, I didn't need to do this, but I'm doing it because I said I would do this. And they're saying that itself is evidence that this is not actually a national emergency. There's also a technical question around having declared the national emergency, what can he actually do with it? One thing that he could potentially do is use the Army Corps of Engineers to build the wall. Another thing that he could do is uh, appropriate military funds. Now, despite Trump saying this is an invasion, I don't think anybody seriously considers this a matter for defence. Right. Um, Even if you're to take the view that, well, this is primarily about interdicting drugs, that is not usually a defence matter. That's considered a policing matter. And there are all kinds of other agencies that deal with that. So there are certainly going to be lots and lots of grounds to challenge this, but we're in uncharted waters and we're dealing with a law that never defined what an emergency is. So it's very hard to tell which way this is going to go, but as I said earlier, I think what many Republicans are most afraid of is that Trump actually succeeds. We, of course, have to mention the uh, Trump-Kim summit this week. How furious do do we think that uh, President Trump is that Cohen and Mueller are drawing attention away from the prestige of this international event? I'm sure that he is very angry (laughs) about that. We have to remember that Trump's whole view of the world and his whole view of the presidency is that these powerful leaders should directly meet with each other and hammer out deals. And he has a huge deal of faith in his own ability to make personal relationships with other leaders that will lead to productive deals. So he wants to talk directly to Xi Jinping about uh, trade negotiations over China. This is very different from how negotiations are traditionally done, where you have months and months of groundwork laid yeah, at the lower levels. meetings behind diplomats, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. and often there never is actually a, you know, a meeting between the two leaders at the top. Certainly there never has been in the past between the US and North Korea because previous US presidents believe that would be validating North Korea. This is not Trump's view. Trump, I think, in many ways goes back to a much older view of international relations, a very monarchical one where essentially the the person of the leader is synonymous with the interests of that leader's people and that it should all be done through these personal relationships with leaders. You can see that Trump has a great deal of esteem for other people who have made it to the top of a big political system. I think he's got a genuine admiration for people like Xi Jinping and for people like uh, Kim Jong-un who've made it to the top of these brutal 
systems. Yep. And they, even though Kim Jong-un inherited that role, he said this, Trump said this week, well, I know a lot of rich kids have screwed up, but you're not one of them. So he, and so he, he puts a lot of stock in these meetings, even aside from what they could actually achieve, because I don't think anyone, Trump included, is actually expecting that much to come out of this meeting. Yeah, that's but, not the point of it, right? No, no, it's yeah. not the point of it. The point is the appearance of the meeting itself. I think that Trump believes that just that meeting together actually creates something that is that is very important. That is certainly the case for Kim. I mean, Kim can turn around to North Korea and say, look at this, I have brought the mighty United States of America to the table. Yep. This is the table that we're now at internationally. I think that in many ways Kim actually gets more out of this than Trump. Trump, for his part, has said that he's no longer in a hurry about denuclearization of North Korea, which suspects that from this meeting he's not expecting some kind of clear commitment to denuclearization with a set of really concrete steps that will make it happen yeah. quickly. It's going to be baby steps yeah. um, that come out of this summit. But he clearly he regards it as something very important. He regards it as something that should get him the Nobel Peace Prize. One possible outcome from this summit that's been talked about is it, would North Korea give something up in exchange for the United States declaring an end to the Korean War, which would be a huge publicity coup for both leaders. Yeah. That could be something that happens. On the other hand, I mean, Trump will be surrounded by American foreign policy officials who would nearly all be advising against the course of action that he wants to take. But Trump has often shown that he's prepared to ignore that sort of advice. David Smith, thank you very much for, for joining us this week. My pleasure. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're so inclined, leave us a review as well. Thanks this week to Babamara Brass Band, Chris Zabriskie, Ketza and Achua for their musical contributions and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance.